The first vision of Zechariah is in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 to 17. We are studying the first vision. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red, sorrel, and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, Comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. (coughs) Amen. This first vision, as well as all the visions, they might be best summarized by saying that they describe the sovereign God who is both God over judgment and redemption. Sovereign God over judgment and redemption. In this first vision, we have elements of both judgment, well, actually his sovereignty over judgment and his sovereignty over redemption. The first one right here. Also, as is typical in visions, we will have the vision itself, and then the interpretation. It's not always in Scripture, and not even always in Zechariah, that there is a subsequent, contiguous interpretation of the recent vision. But a lot of times there are, and they give us help in interpreting the vision. So we should pay attention very carefully to the context whenever we see a vision, and also compare it with other Scriptures of similar Uh, metaphors, similar analogies, and similar um, theology. So, verse 7. First, it sets it in a particular time, the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. This 24th day of the 11th month, which is named here, it's named after a Babylonian name. A few of, of the months, or a couple of the months in the Bible, have Babylonian names, and this is one of them, Shabbat, which is identified as the 11th month of the year. When we say 11th month, we are not talking about the 11th month according to our reckoning 
from January to December, but we're talking about in terms of the lunar calendar and beginning the year in terms of the spring. Beginning the year in the spring and ending in late winter. That is, this date would be on the 15th of February. The 15th of February in the year 519 BC. Because typically the calendar would begin in March and then end in February. Uh, there are adjustments of a couple of weeks here and there depending on the year. But that's typically how it is from March to February. And so this is right at the end or right around the time when the year is about to end. And why would it be at this point? What, why, what is significant? Well, it's a couple of months after Haggai's last vision and about five months um, after, uh, total of, uh, yes, five months uh, before or after Haggai's first vision. His first vision was in um, August, which was in the sixth month, and then now here, this one, in the eleventh month. So it is interrelated to Haggai's visions, but also, being the eleventh month, perhaps at the turn of the year, where usually in the spring, the green grass grows, the flowers grow, the crops grow, it's a time of expectation, and this is set just before it in order to cause the people to anticipate what is to come. Because God is the God who can produce crops and produce uh, wealth from those crops. And that's not insignificant because the myrtle trees, which we'll speak of in verses 8 and following, these myrtle trees are also a significant symbol in this oracle. Uh, one more point is the second year of Darius. The second year. This is the same as Haggai. Now, by this point in the second year of Darius, Darius has basically put down revolts, any revolts when he assumed the throne. When he ascended, t typically when a king ascends the throne for a year or two, there is instability because there are others who would be kings and usurpers to the throne in a transition. And by this point, it has all settled down in his reign. And even according to world history, by this point, things had settled down. And the Persians had complete control of the region. Well, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, which word we saw from our our last study, that this is indeed a true prophet of God. We're not talking about false prophets and false visions, false um, apocalyptic uh, imagery or anything like that. We're talking about a true prophet. He was known as a true prophet at the time. For example, in Ezra 6, 14 and 15, he is mentioned alongside of Haggai. And because of their prophecies, and exhortations, the people were successful in rebuilding the temple. Um, and also later, remember we said that in later days, in the time of the New Testament, Zechariah is one of the most quoted of all of the books of the Old Testament. After books such as Genesis, Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Zechariah is up there in terms of frequency. 
No doubt in terms of his inspiration and canonicity. Okay, now we have the vision, verses eight and uh, verses eight to um, verse eight is actually the vision, and then there is a dialogue in terms of its interpretation from verses nine and eleven, and then more of an explanation from God in verses twelve to seventeen. So verse eight is first the vision proper. What did he actually see? It says, I saw at night and behold, a man was riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. He sees a a vision at night. I saw at night. This, he doesn't call it a dream. It's not, these are known as visions. And we also will notice, not only in this one, but in all of them, there is interaction. Though it's at night, he is aware. He, he's not dozing. He's not inattentive. He is very alert and intelligent in his interaction with whatever is happening in these visions. Also, we notice that it's often at night that there are uh, military activities and a watchman has to be awake. A watchman has to be awake 24-7, whether it's one guard or uh, a routine of transferring the post to other soldiers. It has to be watched. That post has to be watched 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, he's a prophet and he's hearing and seeing the word of the Lord and has to announce it. Just like Habakkuk was told to do so in Habakkuk 2, 1 to 3, he was told and he said the same about his vision. Habakkuk 2, 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. He hastens toward the goal, and he will not fail. Though he tarries, wait for him, for he will certainly come. He will not delay. And perhaps the most famous of all watchmen is Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 3, 16 and 17, He is the watchman of the house of Israel. Now it came about, Ezekiel 3.16, Now it came about at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. And this is nothing new because the Apostle Paul identified himself as such. In similar terms in Acts chapter 20, 26 to 27, when he says that he is innocent of the blood of all men, for he did not shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. That is, he's not guilty for anybody's shed blood because he warned the people. Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 27. And that kind of preaching is also expected of both pastors and the people 
of the church to preach the word in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 8, and even the people themselves. We are to be snatching people out of the fire, Jude 23. Snatch them out of the fire. And a good soldier of Christ Jesus does not entangle himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as soldier. 2 Timothy 2, 4 and uh, 3 to 4. So here we have Zechariah seeing a vision at night and in need of explaining it, in need of sharing it and teaching it. That's why it's recorded and then interpreted. All right, now we've come to the man. Who is this man? First it said in verse 8, a man. And then in verse 10, the man. We have to identify who this man is. There are a few figures here we have to identify. First, it says, a man was riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees which were in the ravine. The man is riding on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees. Likely, he was on the horse and perhaps got off the horse or he's still riding on the horse. But in either case, he's standing with the horse among the myrtle trees. That's verse 8. Then it says in verse 10, The man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said. So he speaks and his words are in verse 10. These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Then in verse 11, the man is given another name, another designation. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. The man in verses 8 and 10 is called the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And because of this, the A of angel, as some translations do, they capitalize the A to signify that this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, before his incarnation. And when it says man in 8 and 10, and then angel or messenger in verse 11, meaning the uncreated messenger of God from heaven, sent from heaven, we shouldn't be surprised that an angel is called a man. An angel is called a man. There are a few instances when this does occur in the Bible where, where these terms are used interchangeably because often when angels appear, they appear in the form of men. They appear in the form of men. In the resurrection of Christ, Luke 24, verse 4, Luke 24, 4, it says, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. 24-4, two men at the tomb stood there in dazzling apparel. And then in 24-23, when that incident is recounted, it says, they had also seen a vision of angels 
they saw a vision of angels. Those two men in dazzling apparel are called angels. Um, Also, when Zacharias, when Zacharias was approached, he was approached by Gabriel, and Gabriel is called in Luke 1, Luke 1 and verse 26, the angel Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. And then in the book of in the book of Daniel, he is also mentioned. Gabriel is mentioned in the book of Daniel, and it says in eight fifteen, Daniel eight fifteen. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Gabriel is an angel, according to Luke one twenty six, And when he appeared to, Gab- uh, to Daniel, Gabriel is said to look like a man. It's not that angels are always in the form of men, but often they are. It depends on the context. Okay, so if that is the case, we have established the interchangeability of these words, man and angel. But what about in reference to Christ? How could this be the messenger of the Lord, meaning Christ, who possesses deity? Why would we say that this is Christ? Well, we know from John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has explained him. But let's seek to show this some more in the Old Testament. Do you remember when a man wrestled with Jacob. A man wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. Genesis 32, 22 to 32. The text says in verse 24, a man wrestled with him. 32, 24, a man wrestled with him. But in verse 30, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob says that he saw God face to face when he was wrestling with the man. And then chapter 48, Genesis 48. Genesis 48. This is Jacob blessing Joseph. And in 48, 15 to 16, 48, 15 to 16, it says, And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may the angel, or the messenger, who has redeemed me from all evil, 
Bless the lads. He's calling on God. He's not calling on any created angel. But he calls God the angel who has redeemed me. The angel who has redeemed me. That means that Jacob knew that the man was an angel and the angel of the Lord who is also God, who also possesses a divine nature. One more place, and that is Hosea 12. Hosea 12, where the prophet describes Jacob, Jacob and the nation Israel. Hosea 12, we can start at verse 3, 3 to 5. Hosea 12, 3 to 5. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Who spoke? Even the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his name. In this place, he's called angel, and he's called Lord and God. Angel, Lord, and God. And this is the same one who wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. Okay, having established the identity of the one man riding on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees as the angel of the Lord, that is Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Now another identification, verse 9. My Lord, what are these? My Lord, what are these? Who is he addressing? It's likely, right there in verse 9, this, the next sentence, and the angel who was speaking with me said to me. The angel who was speaking with me. We should not get these two confused. The angel who was speaking with me is a created angel who is an interpreter. The speaking angel or interpretive angel in verse 9 the angel who was speaking with me. This interpretive angel appears a few times in these visions. We have him right here in verse 9. Also see verse 19 in vision number 2. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, speaking with me, chapter 2, verse 3. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out. 4, verse 1. Then, this is in the fifth vision, when then the angel who was speaking with me returned. 4, 1. 4, verse 5. So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, and 5, 5, chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out. And 6, verse 4, 6, 4. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And there we have something that's similar to chapter 1, verse 9, where he calls the angel my Lord. Lord with a lowercase l, meaning my master, a term of respect. Or in modern English, if we were to say sir, like that. That's a different person, the angel who was speaking with me. And it should not surprise us that Zechariah has an interpretive angel. 
We read Daniel 8. Remember 8, 15, and 16? Gabriel is an interpretive angel in that context. Gabriel is an interpretive angel there. Daniel has had interpretive angels help him with a couple of his visions. Even in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, also says that an angel was there to deliver the word to John. And why was he there? Likely as an interpretive angel. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. By his angel to his bondservant, John. And... At a couple of points, Revelation 19, 10, and 22, 8, John falls down to worship that angel. And the angel says, no, don't do that. Don't do that at all. Also, one other place is Ezekiel 40 to 48. We, don't, we won't turn there, but Ezekiel 40 to 48, there is an interpretive angel helping Ezekiel with that vision too. Okay. The interpretive angel. Also, we have to ask, who all is here? Well, we know horses are here. It says red, sorrel, and white horses. Behind him. Standing behind him. Well, then it must be that there were riders on these horses. Riders on the horses. The man who is um, riding on the red horse and who is the angel of the Lord who speaks up, presumably as the captain of that army. The captain of that army, the one, is the captain of the rest of the horses. It does not tell us how many horses there were. It may be premature to say there were only three more horses. Perhaps so, but perhaps they were numerous. At the very least we know is they had three colors, red, sorrel, and white. Those were the three colors. But to think that Christ has an army is, should be uh, of no surprise to us because also Joshua was assured and comforted that Christ would be helping him conquer the land of Canaan in Joshua chapter 5, 5, 13 to 15. Christ is there called the captain of the Lord's host, the captain of the Lord's host. 5.13, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's hosts said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This has to be deity. It has to be the pre-incarnate Christ because he's told to remove his sandals because the ground is holy. Since the Lord is there, the ground is holy. 
then we have evidence that there is a, a plurality because back in Zechariah 1, that there's more than one individual there that Zechariah sees because it says, not only do we have the interpretive angel, but notice in verse 9, Zechariah asks the interpretive angel, my Lord, what are these? What's going on with all, what's going on with these horses? What's happening? And then he, the answer, it's in the plural, these. I will show you what these are. Still, what are the these? Verse 10, And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. But the these, is he talking about only the horses or also the riders on the horses? I think we have the answer in verse 11. The riders also. So they answered the angel of the Lord. They answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. We have patrolled the earth. The we who answer the angel of the Lord are the we who patrolled the earth. So they are in consultation with each other. Both the leader of the angels and the angels themselves. Uh, also in our passage, we have one more person, and that is God the Father. God the Father, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, that is, the Son addresses the Father. The Son addresses God the Father, O Lord of hosts. All right. Having identified the people or the individuals here, now we have to delve into the significance. Firstly, the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees which were in the ravine. It doesn't say which ravine this was, but if it is an echo or picturesque of the Kidron Valley beside Jerusalem, it was a, a valley that had a brook, the brook Kidron, and it had greenery there by the brook. And so if that ravine is the same ravine, it makes sense, even if it's not that one particular one, if it's just generally speaking, it should be no surprise that myrtle trees are in the ravine where the water is. The myrtle tree is a beautiful tree. It's a fragrant tree and it's a green tree. And actually it's an evergreen tree. The myrtle tree is an evergreen tree. And the significance of that would be that God has an, an everlasting or eternal purpose in mind and he's signifying it by this vision among the myrtle trees, the evergreen tree. Evergreen tree for the symbol of everlasting life, the eternal covenant. Also, then, we have the color of the horses. 
Two of the colors are clear. One is unclear. Clear in terms of what color is meant and what is the meaning of the color. But one is unclear in terms of commentators and interpretation. The clear ones are red and white. The red and the white horses. Red, often in the Bible, symbolizes blood. Blood, such as Isaiah 63, 1-6, where Christ is depicted as having blood stains all over him because he has trampled the nations under his feet. Christ. Um, red signifying blood. That is, God has taken care of business. God has defeated and destroyed his enemies, and their blood stain is all over the place. The blood stains of the people are all over because he has slayed them. He has conquered them. And the other one is the white horses. White signifying divine glory, divine glory because of the purity and glory of God. Um, even Christ, when he returns in Revelation 19, 11 to 21, it says that the armies which are in heaven were following him on white horses. They are in heaven following him on white horses because now the glory of God is going to be evident in judgment. Evident in judgment. Evident in judgment against his enemies, but also evident in judgment for his people. That is, it will be glorious and redemptive and comforting for his people. The book of Revelation is full of this, that when God punishes the wicked, enemies of God's people, the people of God rejoice. They rejoice, Revelation 6, um, 6.10 and 18.20, They are rejoicing when God punishes the wicked. So that's the white horses. The difficulty is, what color is meant by sorrel? Because the NASB says sorrel, and sorrel could be a brownish color, um, yellowish brown, orange brown, maybe reddish brown, but we're not exactly sure what shade of brown it is. But if it is a brownish color, then what would it signify? That is the other difficulty. Since we are talking about defeat of, of the enemy in God's army, it perhaps signifies death. Death, the conquest of death. Because people will go back to the ground from where they came and be buried in the ground also. Um, that one is uncertain. Okay. Now let's go to verse 9. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. We've already spoken of the fact that when he says, My Lord, he is likely addressing the interpretive angel because the interpretive angel responds in this very same verse. And he promises that he's going to interpret. He's going to answer and explain it to him. Then verse 10, And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. This is the son, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, called a man here in verse 10. He answers, 
so that when he answers and informs the interpretive angel, the interpretive angel can explain to Zechariah the prophet. And who are they? These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The Lord. Whatever is going on throughout the whole world, even in the Persian Empire, even where idolatrous and wicked people reign and rule, it is the Lord who is ultimately in control. It's not Satan. It's not wicked rulers. It's not the mass multitude of wicked people. It is the Lord himself. And he uses and sends his angels to help his people. Hebrews 1.14 says, Hebrews 1.14, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Aren't angels that? Do they not go out for our benefit to do the will of God for our benefit? And here, sovereignly so to control exactly what happens, what is allowed to happen, what is prohibited from happening. Angels. Verse 11. So they answered the angel or messenger of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. At this point, they report correctly that the earth is peaceful and quiet. All revolts, all riots, all upheavals, all mayhem has been quelled. Everything has been made to be peaceful and quiet. God has so worked so as to give stability to the people of God within the empire. God has done so. He has control over it and he executed it. That's the report. Why would this be significant for Zechariah and the people? Because they need to know that all is well. In the next paragraph, we learn that it's been 70 years. So they are waiting. They are anticipating. It's imminent when God is going to release them from captivity and restore them back to the land of Judah. So they are assured that God is in control and he will do what he said. He will give them full restoration. So verse 12. Verse 12. The angel of the Lord, the uncreated angel of the Lord, the Lord Christ, he addresses the Father. And when he's addressing the Father, he's not doing it because he doesn't know. He's doing it because it's a part of this vision and when he does it, the answer and the significance of it will be understood by Zechariah, the people of God, and they can derive comfort from it. Comfort and assurance. That's why the angel of the Lord speaks like this. Remember, God doesn't need us, and he is not indebted to us. God is not one who is ignorant of the future or powerless or present and only in one place. He's not sleeping at nighttime in his bed in heaven. He's not in one place like that. That's not the way it works. So when these kinds of statements are made in Scripture, they are meant to be signifying something that we might understand it, for us to comprehend some truth, because we are men. 
and we need explanations. So God does it this way. The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been indignant these 70 years? The Lord of hosts. This is not the first nor the last time we will see this expression, which reminds us of these armies, the angelic armies on the horses. Well, the angel of the Lord is not complaining. He's not complaining, but he is presenting the reality that Jerusalem and Judah has not received the compassion of restoration. They are still in exile. They are still under the thumb of foreigners. And the 70 years of restoration, that 70-year period of restoration has not yet fully transpired. It's imminent, but it hasn't happened. (coughs) So then, he properly describes it as God's indignation. God's wrath, God's indignation. And not his unrighteous, not his unrighteous indignation, his righteous indignation, because of the people's sins. They sinned, they transgressed the covenant of God repeatedly, repeatedly, and therefore they deserved to be punished. Well, also we notice the 70 years. Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, 29, 10, or 29, 11, 10, and 11. There he speaks of the 70 years of captivity in Zechariah 1 and in Zechariah 1, verse, uh, our verse, 1, 12, and then in chapter 7, 7, he also mentions the, the 70 years of captivity, 7 and verse 5. He says, uh, these (coughs) 70 years, 7 verse 5, these 70 years. This has to do with them refusing to obey the commandments of God and specifically the Sabbath commandment. The commandments of God and specifically the Sabbath commandment. That one... That aspect of it is revealed in the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36, 2 Chronicles 36 says, 36 verses 20 to 21. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. 70 years, because they refused to keep Sabbath. They refused to keep Sabbath, so then God forced it on them in a very unpleasant way. Further, we come to verse 13, 1, 13. And the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. The 
Lord is transitioning now here. Remember we said he has been indignant against his own people and he has made sure that the rulers of the world are doing his will. Whatever violence they want to commit, he has subjugated that. He has brought about peace and quiet. Peace and quiet. But now we see what God's attention is, where it is. It's toward his people. Verse 13. It's gracious words, comforting words. Good words, comforting words. These are words that remind us, and this will also be mentioned in verse 17. It says, the Lord will again comfort Zion. He will again comfort Zion. Well, why is it that now there are gracious, good words, comforting words, and not words of judgment? Because of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 will explain this. 40 and verse, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 40 Verse 1, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The comfort is now possible because the punishment has been meted out. The punishment has been delivered and whatever she deserved, she received. Now it's time for forgiveness. First, judgment, then forgiveness. That's why there's comforting words. Verse 14. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But when he says Jerusalem and Zion, he doesn't mean two different entities. He's talking about one entity, one group, by two names or two different names. Sometimes they're called Israel. Sometimes they're called Judah, Jerusalem, Zion, my people, children, sheep. There are different names God uses. And notice here, he is exceedingly jealous, exceedingly jealous for, not against, but for. Jealousy, jealousy, this strong emotion, this zealous emotion, it, can, it could be used for good or for bad. And it could be for someone's benefit or against someone. It doesn't necessarily have to be a negative. First, let's see that it can and is positive. In this context, it's certainly positive. He uses the uh, phrase exceedingly jealous for. Exceedingly jealous for. And he's about to say he's going to act on their behalf. Correct? So that's a positive use of jealousy. Another Positive use, 2 Corinthians 
2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. Well, we should actually start at verse 1. Let's start at verse 1. 1 to 4. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. He's sarcastic in this letter, and that's how he starts this chapter. Then he says in verse 2, For I am jealous for you, jealous for you, that's like Zechariah, with a godly jealousy to clarify in case we doubt it or wonder if it's a sinful jealousy. He calls it a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He has a genuine concern for their souls. And this is called a godly jealousy, that they might remain pure and wholly devoted to Christ, Christ alone, not to any false Christs or false Jesus or false spirit or false gospel, only to the true Christ. In the same way, in a positive way, God is jealous for Jerusalem. Now, this is good jealousy. We just said so. However, there is a negative jealousy, and God has also warned against that. It's better to have God's exceeding jealousy on our behalf rather than working against us. God's jealousy for us instead of against us. He first warned that it might be against us in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. 20, verse 5. You shall not worship them, the idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Watch out for the jealousy of God in the negative. 34, Exodus 34, 14. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Since when has anybody put that to music? They put all kinds of other names of God to music. Frivolous Christian music, but they haven't put this one. I don't know of one. Perhaps so. But have they put this one to music in terms of the, the ability or the desire of God to inflict wrath, jealous wrath against his adversaries? And before we leave this subject, let's go to Deuteronomy 4.24. Deuteronomy 4.24. And we'll notice the phrase there that's instructive for a New Testament verse. Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord your God 
is a consuming fire, a jealous God. A consuming fire, a jealous God. What does, it, what does he mean by consuming fire? He's jealous. How is jealousy described? A consuming fire. Correct? These two phrases are in apposition in, in Deuteronomy 4.24. Where else do we find that God is a consuming fire? Hebrews 12.29, where the apostle says, For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29, which means the New Testament God is the same as the Old Testament God. Both are jealous gods against sinners, unrepentant sinners, and will be a consuming fire to those unrepentant sinners. In Zechariah 1.15, we see the negative, the negative use of this. Zechariah 1.15, But I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. He's very angry at the nations who are at ease. The nations who are at ease, people who are at ease are people who are smug and arrogant, proud in their sins. Nations who are at ease. Amos said against his own people, Amos 6.1, Woe to those who are, at, who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. He pronounces a woe against the men in leadership, the distinguished men who are at ease in Zion. But the nations... The nations of the world, they can also be at ease in a sinful way. Not just Judah, but the rest of the nations. How so? Jeremiah 48, Jeremiah 48 describes Moab this way. Jeremiah 48, 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has been at ease since his youth. He's always been at ease. And in his ease, he exploits the people of God. And one more place. Psalm 123, Psalm 123, 3 to 4. 123, 3 to 4. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us. For we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. People think that when they have ease, everything is fine and everything will be fine. But that's only temporary. God is ready to act. And he will act because he says in one, Zechariah 1.15, for while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Now, he's using a comparative. God's using a comparative. He was angry, and he was even very angry. 
such as in the book of Lamentations 2, 1-4, describes him as being very angry. He was indeed. Shall we read that? Zechariah, or not Zechariah, Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 2, 1-4. to four. Lamentations 2, verse 1. This is when Judah was destroyed, after it was destroyed. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, see there, fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy, and he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire. And also 112, Lamentations 112. Is it nothing to all you who pass this way? Look and see if there is any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt out to me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. When Zechariah says that God was only a little angry, when God says he was only a little angry, he doesn't mean it in the absolute sense. He means it in the relative sense, comparative sense. And he's trying to say, yes, I was angry, but the wicked among the nations, they gloated. They were thrilled to do all this, and they had great desire for flesh. They had great desire for bloodshed. That's what they had, and I'm ready to punish them for their sins. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. A word of promise. Promises in verses 16 and 17. And what is it? I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. Compassion they will receive. This compassion has to do with forgiveness of sins. They departed, but now there is a restoration of relationship. That's why he calls it a return. My house will be built in it. His temple will be built. And particularly the people of God will be built up because of God's grace. Verse 16 also, when he, calls, when he says a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, this is just a symbol, a token of how God is going to make sure to restore Jerusalem. He's going to restore it. And he's illustrating with a measuring line. Leviticus 26, 40. Leviticus 26, 40 to 46. 
God has actually promised this many, many years beforehand through Moses. Leviticus 26.40 If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, did they confess? Last time we said that Daniel chapter 9 is a confession. Daniel 9 is a confession. And later, we also know that Ezra 9 and Nehemiah 9, the people confess there too, corporately confess their iniquity. Verse 41, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. He promises restoration to those humble of heart with an uncircumcised heart which become circumcised. And then we arrive at verse 17. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion, and again choose Jerusalem. The word again occurs four times here. He's going to say it again. He's promising overflowing prosperity that will occur again. In the time of Solomon... 1 Kings 10 is a glowing chapter of the great prosperity of the people. 1 Kings 10, the great prosperity of the people. And this terminology is saying, I have blessings like that to give you. And will again comfort Zion. Comfort comes to the repentant ones, as we saw Repentant and forgiven ones, as we saw in Isaiah 41 and 2. And he says, again, choose Jerusalem. When it says choose, this is showing God's sovereignty and his ability to choose whomever he wishes. Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 11. God's choice. Deuteronomy 7, 6. When God chooses in this way, it's a blessing. 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with them who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. The sovereignty of God is used not only to inflict punishment, but also to grant redemption. And when he grants redemption, there is comfort, peace, prosperity, quiet. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.